have you ever wondered why the Bible is so confusing to understand? Or why Genesis is at the beginning and Revelation is at the end? You ever been curious as to why there's a New Testament and an Old Testament? Or what does that even mean? Well, I'm sure these are all questions that some of us have all asked at some point. So that's what Bible school is all about. We're going to go through the Bible and we're going to talk about the semantics of the why, the how, and most importantly, the who. If you'll ride this out with me, we're going to go cover to cover through the Bible and dig deep and see the mysteries that God has revealed to us through this beautiful love letter that he calls his word. You've just tuned in to Bible School with Reverend Kojo. What's going on, good people, and welcome to Bible School. I'm Reverend Kojo. I am so glad you decided to join me here today. Uh, we are in Revelation 17. I'm going to go ahead and give you a disclaimer. There are going to be some conjecture and some assertions made. And I, the assertions or the conjecture or the ties that I tie to certain things, I don't want you to think that I'm beating up on a certain group on purpose or or for the sake of beating them up. Um, and I don't think that it's everybody in that, that group. I do think that maybe the group at large, the, the scriptures are pointing there. Um, and, and, and I'm going to go ahead and say that I could be wrong. Now, there are a lot of wise, well-meaning scholars who hold the same views that I hold. Uh, but I wanted to go ahead and get that out there before, you know, before you turn me off. <laughs> um, and I do want to get there. We're in Revelation 17. And I think one of the big questions that we ask throughout our journey through Revelation is, does the church go through the tri tribulation? And tonight, surprisingly, my answer is going to be yes and no. Okay. Um, and I'm going to invite you to travel back to, to with me to the letter at Thyatira. Um, you remember we, we studied the uh, letter at Thyatira and we talked about um, they suffered that woman Jezebel and, and they... They were seduced the servants of God to commit fornication uh, and to do things that were not in the will of God. They married the world. You know, we spent a good deal of time dealing with them and we, we drew conjecture and tied them similarly uh, to the Catholic Church. And so I wanted to refresh you on that because we're going to revisit that idea today. We're going to deal with it and we're going to see it fleshed out. We're going to deal with Babylon, the city, the city of man. And we're going to talk about some heavy things that I think a lot of us avoid and are afraid to talk about. We're going to talk about them here today. Um, and with that, with that question I asked, does the church go through the tribulation? The answer is yes and no. Remember Thyatira? He says that if you don't turn uh, from the issues that he points out, he point, the, the idolatry, the uh, fornication, both physical and spiritual, uh, all of the things that are listed in that, that letter, if you don't turn, he's going to throw you into the tribulation. And I think today is going to point to that group. Um, and we're going to deal with that. We're going to talk about it at great length. Um, just kind of wanted to ref refresh your memory. Um, and so I do think that that church, those of them that do not turn, will be in the tribulation. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna be in the tribulation. But there is hope. Remember, it ended, it ended with a hope. Uh, for those who realize that which was not right, got their hearts together and repented of the sin, uh, there was hope that they too would be raptured um, as well. So we're going to deal with that. And so, of course, with my my, my, my traditional answer, does the church go through tribulation? The answer is also no, because there are some in that particular church 
that are raptured. Okay. Um, and then the rest of us <laughs> who count ourselves to be in that number that are indeed raptured and do not have to go through these things. Okay. Um, now there is a woman who kind of takes center stage in these verses. Uh, she takes center stage and she takes center stage in such a way that I think we need to discuss her. We need to discuss her early. I know typically it is my form that, that I might give you a little bit of history and then we put, we tie it in together and then we come to the scriptures today. I think I'm going to talk about it. Then we're going to go to the scriptures because there is a lot of symbolism and this particular chapter pulls from other chapters. Uh, so I want to start today. I want to tra- contrast the woman before you even read it. Uh, I want to contrast the woman in this chapter to the woman that is in chapter 12. They're not the same woman. These are two different women. Uh, but I want to contrast them and I want you to see the stark differences. Because if you can see the stark differences, I think you'll be able to see the differences between the cities. And if you can see the differences between the cities, I think we'll get a better understanding of who we're talking about. All right. So the woman in 12... Remember, we said she was a type of Israel. Uh, she was a representative of Israel. The woman in 17, we're going to get to her identity a little bit later, but I want you to be thinking about the woman in 12. She, she, when we first are introduced to her, she's in heaven. The woman in this chapter we we're going to deal with tonight is in the wilderness. Now, the woman in 12 is the mother of a son. She gives birth to a son. The woman in uh, 17 is the mother of harlots. Ooh, the mother of whores. Um, the, the lady in, in chapter 12 is clothed with the sun. So she's got this bright raiment, uh, clothed with the presence of God, clothed with this, this, uh, supernatural power. This woman in 17 is going to be clothed with purple, scarlet, and gold. So clothed with great wealth, but not necessarily, um, holiness. Okay. And I think, hold, hold on to that. Going to be clothed with wealth, but that doesn't mean she's going to be clothed with holiness, okay? Uh, the woman in 12 influences the sun, the moon, and the stars. The woman in 17 is going to influence the kings of the earth. So she seems like she's got a good deal going on, okay? The woman in 12, uh, the dragon was her enemy. The woman in 17, her enemies were the seven kings. I mean, the ten kings. The woman in 12 is pure. The woman in tw- 17 is a, um, I mean, the woman in 12 was pure. The woman in 17 was a whore. The woman in, in, in 12 was hated by the powers of the earth. The woman in 17 caressed, was caressed by the powers of the earth. The woman in 12 sustained, was sustained by the wings of heaven. The woman in 17 was sustained by the red dragon. The woman in 12, fi- her final location is the New Jerusalem. Okay? The woman, the woman in chapter 17 becomes the inhabitation, the habitation of demons. So the stark contrast, these two women are not the same woman. Okay. And I think sometimes we would confuse that because we just see this, this woman and we see this other woman that was showed up earlier in the book. And we assume it's the same woman. This woman, these women are not the same. Um, they're not given names because they are types of groups. Um, and so I want us to, to be thinking in that direction. Now I want us to also be thinking in this direction that this chapter, well, no, no, this book, and when I say this book, this Bible, is is in many ways a tale of two cities, okay? In many ways, it's a tale of two cities. It, it, you know, the city of God and the city of man. The city of God, 
uh, is first introduced in Genesis 14 when Abraham travels to Salem. And when he arrives at Salem, he encounters a priest and a king named Melchizedek. And he is, is moved upon his spirit to, to pay the first tithe. And he gives Melchizedek his tithe. Now, you remember Melchizedek was, uh, Jesus came of the line of Melchizedek, both king and priest. And the only other people in the, in the line of Melchizedek other than Jesus are the church. Um, which again, that, that whole mystery of the church, um, we're, we're of this special line. We are the line of Melchizedek. Um, but I want you to remember Melchizedek reigned in Salem, which soon becomes Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, and Salem means peace or perfect peace or complete peace. Um, and what's interesting, interesting, I can't pronounce the, the Hebrew word for Jerusalem. So I'm just say this, but, but Jerusalem, the word, the Hebrew of it, uh, or more specifically the temple Mount was the very spot that Abraham almost sacrificed his son, Isaac. And when we look at the narrative there, uh, you see that the angel told him not to sacrifice his son in a reese. And so Abraham named that place. God will see and said to this day on the mountain, God will be seen. Okay. That's actually kind of interesting because the Hebrew word for we'll see is Yaira. All right. Uh, and that's the first half of the Hebrew word for Jerusalem. All right. Uh, now the city was before was called, uh, before Abraham called it Yaira, uh, discovered this. We kind of backtrack a couple of chapters and after he rescues his relative lot from captivity, we read how he was there, uh, with Melchizedek, Salem, uh, so God will be seen and Salem means God will, uh, we will see peace. So Jerusalem means God will be seen and we will see peace. So when we see God, we will see peace. Um, and, and so Jerusalem was built in a physical sense as the place that we would find peace. The place that we would find God would be the place that we find peace. Now on a spiritual level, isn't that the truth? The place that we find God is where we find peace. Where we find God, we find fulfillment. We find joy. We find right standing. Okay. And so I think it's interesting that the city of God literally means where you find God, you will find peace. Um, and so we have this city of God, this place from the beginning that God ordained his spirit to dwell, his people to inhabit his, his presence and for him to inhabit the praises of his people from the beginning, from the beginning, he, he ordained that that would be the place that he would reconcile everything that it was in Jerusalem that Jesus walked in right before he was to be crucified. It was in Jerusalem that they built the temple. It was in Jerusalem. That was the place that if you would find God, you'd find peace. And that's the place he wanted to be sought. The place, the city of God, the, the place where perfect peace ought to abide. Now, I'm not saying that's the case now, but that in a theological, in a spiritual uh, sense, the city of God. Okay. On the other uh, side of things, on the other um, piece of it, you have the city of man. The city of man is Babylon. Now, Babylon we, rears its head for the very first time in Genesis 10. All right. Uh, in Genesis 10, uh, its first mention is at the Tower of Babel, which is later becomes Babylon. It's the same place. It's mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. Um, it's the lowest, first location of, of the first world dictator, Nimrod. And see, Nimrod 
was defined or described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. But the original Hebrew would suggest to me that he, he, instead of him being a mighty hunter before the Lord, he was a mighty hunter in defiance of the Lord, which inevitably everything that has come from him, everything that has come from the, the empire that he built and the empire that ruled the world and the empire that is to come has all been about defiance of God, disproving God, turning men from God. That was Nimrod's pearl purpose from the beginning. Um, I, I mean, his entire purpose from the beginning, Nimrod get, comes to power and Nim, when Nimrod comes to power, he begins to try to convince men to turn their hearts from God. Remember last time we talked about how the son, how he first, um, he first led the men and the women to worship the son and God calls that same thing that they worship that led them into defiance of him to hurt them here in, at the end in chapter 16. His everything that he did, everything from the beginning was that he was pointing men in defiance of God. Kind of like, you know, because he was obviously satanically influenced. Um, now, the interesting thing about Babylon is we find all of the satanic origins right there. Okay. All the satanic origins, we, we find them right there in Babylon. As Babylon was conquered throughout history, the power and the, the views that they held were transplanted everywhere they went. Now, you remember we talked about how all of paganism came right out of Babylon. And I promise you we were going to talk about that in depth today. All of that stuff came right out of Babylon. That worship of the sun, the worship of the trees, the worship of all the stars, the worship of the creation. And what's interesting, I, I know I talked to you about the Maseroth and I talked to you about the Zodiac. What happened is what God created to tell you the story about him, Nimrod convinced them to worship those things. Worship the idea, worship the idea and not the one who created the idea. Worship the one who came up with, worship the thing and not the creator. Worship the creation and not the create creator. That sounds a lot like this whole, oh, I put it out in the universe. Oh, the universe provided. All the, all of these things, these new age, new school um, theologies and, and thinkings that people are pushing out and they're using. And so instead of saying, oh, praise Jesus, people are saying, oh, thank you. Thank the universe. From the beginning, you know, these are not, they call it new age thinking. This ain't new age thinking. This goes back to darn near the beginning. At Satan's attempts to try to rip off the truth about God. Okay. Um, and, and, and what's crazy is that, you know, those trans, that those ideas everywhere they went as Babylon was conquered, um, as Babylon was conquered, they moved their headquarters to Pergamos. Ooh. When the Greeks conquered them, it was transplanted to Greek, to Greece. After the Greeks, the Roman empire, and it was transplanted everywhere they went. These ideas spread over the world just like Christianity went. Satan was chasing down where, 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 where the truth about God was known. As those folks would come in, he would go in and, and sneak in his head, just like he did in the garden. The truth of God about God was known. These folks were walking with God on the daily in a way that only me and you can anticipate for from to heaven for. They weren't walking with God the way we walk with God. They were walking with God. These folks were walking with God and he had to rear his head. And he reared his head to get them out of communion with God. And that's what he did in Nimrod. That's what he's done in Babylon. And when they moved to Pergamos, that's what he did in Pergamos. When they moved to Greece, that's what he did in Greece. When he moved to Roman, the Roman Empire, that's what he did in Rome. That's what he's done in China. That's what he's done in, in um, India. That's what he's done in, in, in um, 
in all these different mysticisms and these diversions and ripoffs of God. Everywhere that they had the truth about God, he convinced them of a lie. And they became like those in Romans 1 where he said they, and they knew the truth about God, but they refused to acknowledge him as God. And that's what, that's what we see happening. And I would argue with you that the truth about God is very much so known even to those who don't know the truth about Jesus. You cannot tell me that if you're breathing and you look at the trees and you look at the sun, the moon, and the stars, and you look at around you, you cannot tell me you can't see an intelligent creator. You may not be able to put your eyes in, at his eyes, but you cannot tell me that you cannot see it. There's no way in the world that something just went off one day <laughs> and all of this intelligence was created. There's no way. How could you have an intelligent creation without an intelligent creator? The truth about God was known even where the truth about Jesus was hidden. That's how they knew about God before there was a Jesus. That's how they knew about people like Enoch could walk with God. That's how people like Abraham. Abraham had not encountered God, but he had tried, started testing and seeking. Old documents that never made it into the canon would suggest that Abraham was in defiance of his father because he was trying to uh, figure out this unknown God. And this unknown God made himself known to him and made him the father of many nations. So understanding that, Satan, since the beginning, has been chasing down the glory of God, trying to discount it, thinking that if he could discount it in our eyes, maybe we would give him devotion. But as, as, as this paganism what that started in Babylon was transplanted all over the world. I want you to notice that the priesthood always followed the money. So wherever it was transplanted, wherever it was hot, wherever the most people were being converted to these ideas, the priesthood followed the money. Okay. And then the paganism, okay, that we typically associate with the Romans are just Latin labels for what began in Babylon. Okay. The paganism, the sun gods, the moon god, and the, the wind god, the water god, all of that stuff is demonic. And it's demonic in nature that we see it in its roots in the beginning. Okay. All right. So when Constantine adopts Christianity as the state religion, Instead of adopting true Christianity, what he does is he, mer he merges uh, mere pagan traditions with Christianity. At Christmas, the Yule log, uh, where they, they put some kind of log, I think, in the fire or something like that, and then you wake up and you got a, a dress tree. Uh, Christmas trees came from that. It didn't come from some, some great theological truth. No, they got that from the pagan things that were happening in Rome when Constantine decides that he's going to be a Christian, but he doesn't want to be a real Christian because... He didn't like everything that the canon of scripture said. And since he didn't like the whole thing that the canon of scripture said, he told them, well, y'all scrub this stuff out and you tell them it's allegory. Um, in Easter, uh, they had they had a holiday in, in that time of the year where the Easter's were laying eggs. And so all of a sudden, somehow we associate the death of Jesus Christ with Easter, with uh, eggs being laid. It, that's crazy. And, and, and it, this was in, in reaction to the church, uh, to this church trying to adapt the culture Instead of standing on what is true and what is good, if, there's nothing wrong with worse, with um, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with celebrating all of these major turns in our Christianity. The fact that we adapted the world system instead of the other way around, 
when the world married the church is the problem. Okay. And I know y'all are probably sitting here like, oh, so I can't decorate my tree. Well, it's, this is the truth of where it came from. So we got this, these two cities, this, the Bible, the Bible is built on these two cities, the city of God and the city of man, Jerusalem and Babylon. All right. And, and I want us to hold on to that. And I also want you to, I, I want to hold on to this, um, that we're about to move into the scripture. And as we get ready to move into the scripture, I want you to think about this, that the woman is a prostitute. She's unfaithful to God. Her influence, her influence is going to be global. Um, and I don't want you to confuse this one with the beast that she's riding. She's seated on the beast. She manipulates. She's decked in purple, scarlet, gold, and jewels. They're expensively adorned. They're, she's very wealthy. She's carrying a golden cup, which is a utensil of God's service, but it's filled with abominable things. Okay. A mystery. She's, she has a mystery title called Babylon the Great, which is linking us symbolically to the Babylon of Nimrod. I promise all of this is going to make sense. I'm trying to give you this information to help this, these verses make sense. Um, She's a persecutor of Christians, so she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. And she's more than being thirsty. She's more than being bloodthirsty. She's drunk with the blood. And this is associated with the, the city of the seven hills. Now, she rules She rules over the kings of the earth. And in John's day, day it was Rome. Because that's who ruled the world. Now, there are a lot of ideas about who the woman is. You know, the woman in 12 was Israel. There are a lot of ideas about who the woman is. There's one really, really big one. And then there's one, a lot of people who hold that they believe that the woman or the mystery of Babylon, this woman is the United States. I don't necessarily hold that, that idea. And I don't necessarily hold that idea because first, it had, you know, it's a city and the United States is not a city. Um, I don't necessarily hold that one because Alabama, I mean, not Alabama, the United States is not a city on seven hills. Um, and while the United States is a international power that does rule a lot of things worldwide, it's declining in power. Um, now, those who hold the view that the United States is, is Babylon. Um, you got the woman who has ties to Columbia University and there's heavy messianic foundations and it relies on Greco-Roman influences in DC. But I think that Roman piece gives us a lot now because, you know, there are a lot of people who believe that Babylon is the United States. There is a growing population of people who believe that Babylon, um, is going to be the literal Babylon. And, and, and that's not even on is really, that's only emerged in the last 40 years because before that it was laughed at for centuries that it would be the literal Babylon because the literal Babylon had been destroyed until the eighties when Saddam Hussein started to build, build Babylon all over again. And he was making it very clear that it, it was that, well, uh, he started building it in, in the eighties and then he stopped, he was stopped. And as he was stopped, um, the conjecture of the idea that it would be literal Babylon still hangs in the balance. But I want us to think about it. It's, it, it, the Bible, we're talking today about the mystery of Babylon or the spirit of Babylon. There are a lot of scholars that hold this view, and, and it is my view, um, lightly and tentatively. It is not a, one of those, it's not a hard or fast for me 
at this place in my study, this is the view that I'm leaning toward. Uh, but it's not a whole hard and fast view. So you may talk to me in a year and I may have a different view. But as I'm studying this and as I'm, I'm dissecting this and I'm, I'm ever looking at it, we have to ask the question, is Catholicism or Rome or the Vatican Babylon? Okay. Why? Why do you think that, Kojo? Well, verse 18 of chapter, uh, verse 18 of this chapter tells us that the woman is a city. Okay. And the woman which thou sawest is a great city which reigns over uh, the kings of the earth. In verse 1, we're told that the woman sits on many waters. Verse 15 explains the meanings of the waters. And, it's, and he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest were where the whore sitteth of our peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Not only is this woman a city, but the city is apparently the headquarters over a vast international system. There is a city on earth known as the city of seven hills. And it's the city of Rome. But you have to ask the question, is Rome the headquarters of an international power that rules over peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues? The Vatican claims to rule over one billion Roman Catholics worldwide. Remember, this prophecy was written long before the Catholic Church existed and long before the Rome ever became her headquarters. Revelation 17, 4 says, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. There are two ruling bodies in the Roman Catholic Church, the College of Cardinals and the College of Bishops and the Archbishops. These two bodies are somewhat like the Senate and the House of Representatives here in the United States. Cardinals wear red, and non-cardinal bishops wear arch, arch, and archbishops bishops wear purple. And there's another fact that we kind of need to understand that in Revelation 17, God chose to use a woman, a whore, to symbolize who he was talking about. And so if this is the Roman Catholic Church, we have to ask the question, why? It's kind of simple. In Scripture, God always used a woman to symbolize a church. He used a virgin to rep represent his true church in 2 Corinthians 11.2. Uh, and he used the harlot to represent the false church, as he did in Revelation 17, 19. And when he did it in the seven of seven churches, he, he uses them, he compares them to that harlot or that suffer that woman Jezebel, which has had a heart, spirit of harlotry. Because it says that that spirit of Jezebel led them to do the abominations that he kind of alludes to here. Okay. So, you know, I... I'm holding that view. It, 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 my eyes have, I've been doing a good big, bit of reading and researching and, and thinking through this thing. And I don't want to go ahead and condemn all of Catholicism. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily want to go in and, and condemn all of Catholicism, but I do want to say this much. Um, I mean, I, I, I want to say this much is that, Catholicism may be the, the brand, the big, the big, the big umbrella. And it may not be. But I want you to think of it like the seven letters to seven churches. Every church he admonishes. Most of them he rebukes. And then he offers hope to all seven at the end. Or he, he tells them, gives them instruction at the end. Even Thyatira, which we kind of compare to the Catholic Church, 
even Thyatira has instructions to gain some hope. Okay. And so as we go through these verses and as we, we kind of deal with this, uh, through, through the gaze and through this idea, um, I don't want you to see this as, as, a, as an indictment or a rebuke, maybe a rebuke, but not a, a condemnation. Yeah. A condemnation. Um, because I'm not God, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just pulling, you know, trying to pull it together and trying to give you an idea of what I, what I see and what I think. And, um, some of the things that I've read and in which directions I've leaned in. And I tried to find some things that made it seem like somebody else was, <laughs> was this, but I, I will say from what I see, um, and from what I've read and from what I study, this is what I found. Now I will tell, let you know this. There are some people who regard there, 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 it will be an ecclesiastic Babylon in 17. So a churchy Babylon in 17 and a commercial Babylon in 18. Um, but I would encourage you to go and take, take about 40, 40 minutes to an hour and read through Isaiah 13 and 14, read through Jeremiah 50 and 51 and read through Revelation 17, 18 together. Read all, read all six passages together in tandem. And then tell me if you really think that they're going to, um, befall, be separate or together. Because I think I think we get a complete picture between 17 and 18. Now, today we're going to be dealing with the world system. We are we're we're being introduced to this world system, um, and and it comes kind of comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means to bring out or bring order out of chaos. Um, and I, as we deal with this world system, I want you to keep in mind and meditate on uh, John 17 9 that, that says, "I pray for them." Uh, I'm not praying for the world. But for those of you who have, who have, who have, you have given me for they are yours. God is, Jesus is, is making sure that we understand that there is a difference between the world system and him. That the people he has been given to are the people with whom he has put in his charge. And he is not praying for the others. Sounds really, really, really not Jesus-y. But this is Jesus. Um, and so I want us to be thinking in this, think in that direction. And let's dive into the scriptures. All right. Chapter, chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had seven vials, and talked to me, saying unto me, Come hither. I will show unto you the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So this whore idea is full of false devotion or flattery. It has this, this sense of pretend affection to get favors. And, and I want you to literally think about how a whore, like how that works. If I bought a woman to have sex with, um, what that looks like is I'm going to get, she's going to show affection until it's over till she gets the money that she wanted. She's going to make me feel like I'm the boss. Like I'm the best thing since grits. Like I'm everything in the world that she could ever have dreamt of. And, and when she gets the money, it's over. And so the, it, I think that this whole idea of this horror is that there's this false sense of flattery, that there's this two facedness. There is this this devotion, but it's false devotion. There's this sense of, I mean, it's, this it's whoredom. I mean, I don't, I don't know another way to say it. It's kind of like when you end up with a one night stand, if you ever, you know, if you end up with a one night stand, the way that that turns out looking is that, you know, you end up with this woman who, um, you end up with a, a one night stand, you end up, you know, y'all all over each other until it's over. And then you wake up in the morning and she's gone. Um, I think that's the image that we're getting here is that this is not a true relationship. This is not, um, she's not true to anybody. 
Okay. She, you know, if this is indeed the Catholic Church, she has confessed Christ, but she's sleeping with Satan. And as, as the bride of Christ, that makes you ask the question, so what's really going on here? You can understand, you can imagine the frustration, the anger that God would have towards somebody that he would allow go to go through the tribulation. You're married to me, but you're sleeping with Satan. You're sleeping with my adversary. You're not just sleeping with some random guy. Cheating is bad enough. It's bad enough, but you're cheating on me with everything that I stand against. Everything I seek to liberate folk from, you're standing against that. But you notice she's going to be called a harlot four more times in this chapter alone. And I want you to, I want you to also keep this in, in mind, that this is not the only time we see a, hit, a city get called a, a harlot. Jerusalem is called a harlot in Isaiah 121. Tyre is called a harlot in Isaiah 23. Nineveh is called a harlot in Nahum. Um, this is not the first time we get this idea but I want us to understand the gravity of what's happening here. Because if this isn't indeed one of the seven churches, if this is the Catholic church as we know it, if this is a part of the body of Christ that we would think, you know, if, if that's what this is, you would imagine why he uses such strong language like whore and harlot. You know, you think about it. If you've ever been cheated on, you know, you have been, you, you, there, there are not light emotions that come up when you discover that no, not only has your trust been broken, but you have, you have broken the deepest level of trust there is, you know, there, there, there is, there are levels to this thing, but you, can you imagine how deep it takes you, how, um, far it, 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 far it'll make you feel there is, and I, I imagine it, it takes being cheated on to understand. It takes having your trust broken to understand. But should you have been there, I understand why the language is so harsh here. Uh, verse 2, And with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Lynn made the statement that religion is the opiate of the people. And I think that that's sad, but true. Everybody is seeking truth. Everybody is looking for truth. And, and we often seek to find truth in religion. Um, and dare I say, you're not going to find truth in religion. You're not going to find truth till you get in the arms of Christ. You could join the church. They could tell you about how much Jesus loved you. They could tell you about how he died for your sins. They could paint the picture of how much of a rank sinner you are. They could do all of these things, but until you have an encounter with Jesus Christ for yourself, you're, that truth is never going to be reconciled for you. You can believe it, but it's not going to be made flesh for you. It's not going to be real for you. It's not going to be something that you can breathe and taste and smell. And so... When, when he makes that statement that religion is the opiate of people or the fact that the, the, the people were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. They were, made, they were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. In other words, they loved the fact that she dipped into what they did, co-signed what they did, so that they loved that, they loved this, this, this organization, they loved this, this city, this being, this, 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 what this organization represents, represented because it didn't make them feel bad for what they did. They could always pay for their way out. And the truth is, is that we cannot afford to pay for our sins, which is a sin of the Catholic Church. 
but they were made drunk with the wine for fornication because they co-signed. Think back through history. It was, unfortunately, the Catholic Church that led the Crusades. It was, unfortunately, um, the church that stood by as Hitler did the Holocaust, and it were well-meaning Christians that controlled concentration camps. There were well-meaning Christians who were part of that military. It, it were, there were Christians, both Protestant and Catholic, that went into all of Africa and raped it of not only its natural beauty, its natural jewels, not of, of its natural resources, but its human resources. Stole princes and princesses and stole commoners and stole people from their homes and from their families, never to be met again. Left generations and generations of people asking the question, where do my roots reach? And stamped it as the work of God. Then built nations, built one of the most powerful nations on the earth. Built nations and stamped it with the name of God. This was the will, the will of God, called it manifest destiny. This was the will of God that we would kill and steal and destroy. Does that sound like the will of God? The, the, the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication because they said, this is fornication, the idolatry, because this is what it was. They said that God co-signed that which was the character of Satan. Think about it. They stole, they killed, they destroyed. Who does that? That's not the will of God. That's not what God does. But they called it manifest destiny. They called it the will of God in the crusades. They did all of these things and they called it this because it felt good. And so the world became drunk with their fornication because they could relate to it. They could relate to it. It was as far from a truth, the truth about God as we could get, but we related to it. We talk about times being bad. Now times were bad then. We just didn't have cameras to see it all. Just didn't have, we didn't have a camera to see it all. And see, what happens is really just a mask for power broker. And we, call, we say we're doing this in the name of Jesus. And for the name of his kingdom, we're going to go and tell people that they live right and wrong. And we're going to make them conform to our ways. Forget the fact that the gospel had already traveled to their land well before, well before there was a Europe. Well before. But see, the control of the state by religion is one of the most dangerous trends in view. And, and, and I know that there are a lot of, of, of white evangelicals who want to say that that is this new enforced paganism and it is dangerous and I don't like it, but it's not just paganism that's forced by the government. It's what we call Christianity that doesn't look like Christ running our government. It's, it's a Christian base supporting a president that doesn't look like Christ, doesn't rule like Christ, but they would die for that man. Now, it is my personal view that well, I haven't seen a righteous president in my lifetime. Neither party. 
happen. But I think you, you ought to at least look like him. But I think, I believe that when the state is controlled by religion, and I'm not talking about Jesus, I'm talking about religion, I'm talking about legalism, rules, laws, and all of that stuff. When the state is ruled by religion, things get dangerous. We saw it in the Crusades. We saw it in the Holocaust. We saw it all throughout time. We saw, we saw it all over the And now Christians we are getting nervous because we're going from enforce what we've been calling Christianity. And some of this stuff has been good to children not being allowed to pray in school, to evolution, evolution being taught in the schools, to the Big Bang Theory being put in science books. All of these things that hold, that are foolish, okay? Ideas that are foolish, ideas that have no scientific base, that people who consider themselves thinkers ought to be ashamed that they came up with such ideas now are being pushed by the state. But we created that system when we pushed ideas that God never ordained down the throats of people. Let me move on. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon the scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now the woman is sitting on the beast. Okay? The woman is sitting on the beast. Don't confuse them. She's riding the beast, but he's going to ultimately turn on her. Okay? She's riding the beast, but the beast is going to ultimately turn on her. Now, these ten heads, remember we talked about these seven heads, these ten horns. We, we're representing countries here um, and countries that have fallen as well. Full of the names of blasphemy. Okay? Full of the things that are not pleasing to God. So she's riding something that is the antithesis of who she's claiming to be. Okay, writing something that is not pointing in the direction of who she claims to love. What's supposed to be right, what's supposed to be righteous. What's funny to me is that the Catholic Church stands so boldly against so many things, but I can't hardly ever see what they stand for. Wait, and you know what? I, I don't even need to say the Catholic Church. So many of our churches, not just Catholic so many of our churches scream so loudly about what we're against, but we don't talk about what we're for. Full of the names of blasphemy. But yet we live lives that look like we're riding the beast. We've gotten in bed with a, very, with a variety of sin. We've forgotten about loving mercy and walking justly with our God. But we're riding the beast. The woman is sitting on the beast. She's sitting on the beast and she's controlling him. Mm. She's controlling him. Verse 4. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of the of, of abominations and filthiness and fornication. Now, I want you to think about this. Purple was the predominant color of the Roman, Roman imperialism. As a matter of fact, every senator wore purple as a stripe, as a badge of their own position. Uh, and the emperor wore purple robes. Scarlet has also been adopted by the Vatican. Now, what do you think here? The golden cup throughout scripture, especially in the temple, I think that this is great symbolism for us to, to kind of dissect. The golden cup has often been used, understood, 
as a holy symbol 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 for drinking cup. You know, with this cup, uh, you sitting at the, the Lord's table or you're in the temple. Uh, that cup usually represents um, having communion, drinking of the cup of God. But the cup that's mentioned here is filled with abominations and the filthiness of her, her fornication. It's been, it's been desecrated. A lot of people seem to think that this golden cup represents the anti-church, not the anti-Christ, but the anti-church. The, the, this hostility toward the church and all that it represents. She's holding the reason people run from church. Good God. The reason that people don't want anything to do with church. The reason that folks say, why bother? Why try? Why? And these abominations that are in this who? In this cup are synonymous with idolatry. The things that are offensive to God are in the cup. The reason folks say, why bother? It's in the cup. So when they look at the church, if this is the, the Thyatiran church, if this is the Catholic church, if this is the Vatican, when they look at the church, they ask the question, why bother? Why do I need to try? Why do I need to move in that direction? Why? Here's your answer. And I think that, you know, a lot of us believe that this is, this is pointing toward the Vatican, but I think we need to take an, in a, a moment to look at our lives, whether you're a Catholic or you're a Protestant, and you need to ask yourself, are the things that I do the reason that nobody wants to come to the church? Am I too churchy that I forgot Christ? Am I so caught up in the fact that I could be moving forward? Am I so caught up in the fact that I'm grasping for power? Am I caught up in the fact that I want authority? Because the truth of the matter is, is that the church was never supposed to rule on the earth until Christ came back. And this, this, this work of the church trying to rule governments. And I know you may not be okay with me, but the idea that the church is both trying to rule governments and been running governments, whether Catholic or Protestant, the idea that was never the will of God until Christ came back. Because it would always be religion until he was reigning. Because if Christ is going to rule with love, if Christ is going to rule with the fullness of who he is, if he's going to rule and reign in, in the true fullness of truth, the fullness of love, and the fullness of his power, we are too broken to do it. But we're too prideful, too proud to admit that. And so we try to push down the, our theology and instead of pushing our theology, we forget to push love, which is supposed to be our theology. And we bind people with law who were, were baited with grace. Hmm. Now, one of the things that derails the church is the, the pursuit of power. You know? It, it, every time, it, every time, it seems like every time we see somebody fall, they get caught up in their power. Every time we see a pastor hit the ground, he gets caught up in his power. He got too much influence. He put his hands in the money. He got, he got too much. And then we see them fall grossly because we weren't, that, that wasn't the will of God. We weren't supposed to rule. We were, we're supposed to rule with Christ, not figuratively, but literally. But we stepped out too soon. And, and I think that's a lesson for, for all of us. A lot of us step out too soon. Maybe, maybe we're not the church. Maybe we're not the pope. Maybe we're not a priest. Maybe we're not a preacher or a pastor. But we step out too soon into things. 
It was never the will of God that we stepped off the curb because we, but because we stepped off the curb, we got hit by the car. We weren't supposed to step into those first five relationships. Supposed to be working on your relationship with Jesus. But we got sidetracked because Satan reared his head and he lured you. That's what happened here. Lured with power. She got power. And then she decided to ride the beast because she got power. And they became drunk with her fornication. They got drunk by her sin. They liked the ripoff version. And not the true thing. Now this blasphemy we see here in this verse. Includes anything that adds or takes away from God's completed word. One of, one of Satan's many lies. And we know he tells a billion of them. Is that you can, you know, you can get to heaven from being good. You can pay your way into heaven. If, you, if you're just good enough. Don't worry about confession and belief. Just be good. Be kind. He tells that lie. Convinces folks of that lie. And blasphemes. And people fall for it. They fall for this idea that if they go tell a man the truth, they don't have to confess and believe. That, that there is not, there's more work to be done. This idea of grace alone, the Catholic Church struggles with it. But so many of us struggle with it. You know, I, I can pick on them, but I can pick on me too. So many of us fall by this sword. So many of us fall by this sword. Because there's, there's a flavor of legalism for everybody. Maybe, maybe you don't struggle with the grace issue outright. Maybe you don't struggle with the love issue until it's somebody you don't understand why they sin the way that they do. You know, maybe your thing isn't that women got to wear dresses in the sanctuary, but maybe your thing is that people can't have alcohol. Maybe your thing is that because they came from a certain family, they can't do that. Maybe because somebody loves a little bit different than you, they could never be loved by God. What, all of us have a flavor of legalism that we can't understand. And we hold to it and somehow it makes us feel like we're better, we're bigger. This, this, this is what we're talking about here. She's holding the blasphemy and the abominations because she has made other things paramount to the grace of God. Drunk with power. Drunk with it. Verse 5. And upon her forehead was written mystery, Babylon the Great, and the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Mystery. Mystery comes from that word mystique. Um, which is a mystery that was is now being revealed. It, it was a secret up until this point, but now he's revealing it. The mystery of, Va- of Babylon, we want to hold that in, to, in contrast to the church. The church is revealed in, in Ephesians 3.1. The church is one of the most confused concepts in the whole Bible. You know, this idea that, that, that the Jews came down uh, 12 tribes, but the church... Is engrafted in, but it is of the lineage of Melchizedek. How did the church get different rights? Why, why is it the church's rule by the same God, but in a different way? Hmm. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Ephesians. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Jesus Christ, for Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles. For surely you have already heard the commission of God's grace, 
that was given to you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I wrote to you in a few words and a reading of which I will, will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets of the spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I've become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by his working of his power. Although I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me to bring the Gentiles the news of boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see that this is, is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in, the, in, of, in God who created all things. The mystery was revealed of the church. There was a mystery that was hidden, but there is a mystery that is hidden of Babylon. And that's what we're dealing with today. The church was revealed, and here we're seeing a revelation of this city of Babylon. All right. We also see in, in this, this title that she's the mother of harlots. I want you to notice that harlots is plural. There's more, there's several, okay? Um, and I also want you to see. That ecclesiasticisms, which is an obsession with the church identity, tends to lead to idolatry. Okay. Which leads, which is what God kind of talks about as fornication um, on a spiritual level. He still don't like, he don't like physical fornication. But on a spiritual level, um, idolatry is, is, is fornication because it's cheating on God. Um. But I want us to remember that ecclesiasticism is idolatry. Sometimes we we become so in love with the church, okay? We become so in love with the church that in our love for the church, we forget to love Christ. Kind of like Ephesians. <laughs> like Ephesus. Uh, we become so in love with the church that we like to do church um, we like to go to church. We like to represent the church. We like that we are part of the church. We, we deitize the fact that we are special. We will forget who made us special. Okay. And I just, I want you to think about that. Cause I just, I talked about this revelation of the church. I don't, I didn't want you to, to think that because you're special, that makes you better. Um, I, I wanted to clear up that because some of us become so involved in church. You know, I told you Lennon said the church religion is the opiate of people. Well, well, the Christian is not, a, a, we're not exempt from that. Sometimes we become so caught into the religion piece of it that we forget the spiritual piece of it. We get so enraptured by the religion piece of it that we forget what God has made us to be. All right. Verse six. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood, the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. This woman is not just guilty of the blood, but she's drunk with it. Specifically, the martyrs of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you the question, who, who has the most Christian blood on their hands? Historically. It's the Catholic Church. I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. We, not we, I'm, I guess I'm not, I'm not Catholic. But I guess the church has killed more church folks than anybody else in the entire world. For years, Satan didn't even have to attack the church because the church was attacking itself. That sounds like all of our churches. 
That doesn't just sound like the Catholic church. That sounds like all of our churches. There's, there's so much hell in the church that you don't have to worry about it because the church can't grow because the church been fighting itself. And if the church has been fighting itself, what do we do with that? Where do we go with that? John says, when I saw her, I, I wondered with great admiration. I don't think that John is saying that he admired her as if he was smitten by her. I think he was, he was stunned. He was stunned. And, and I want you to think in this direction that he would, he would not have been stunned if it was the Rome of his day. Because the Rome of his day was a pagan Rome. And if it was the pagan Rome, pagan Rome, of course, is going to do the whole sleep. You know, they're going to do the whole idolatry thing. They're going to do the stuff that is not pleasing to God. Of course, they're going to be killing Christians. Of course, they're going to be doing these things. It, it, was, it was a Roman Caesarian cross that killed Jesus. It was a Roman cross upside down that killed John. The Romans were the ones that tried to, well, it, it, it's allegorized, that tried to boil him with oil and it didn't work. He would not have been stunned if it was the Rome of his day. But if it was the Rome of our day, they called themselves the church. Had organized themselves. Called themselves, had all types of crosses, crucifixes, all the rituals had gotten the communion down to a science, had the vestments, was one of the richest organizations in the world, but still ain't got it right. He was stunned. When he realized who it was, he was stunned. Now that makes me think, again, that it's the church. Probably the Catholic church. And this is just conjecture, because it may not be. It may not be, but when we look at what we see, that's where I came. But he was stunned. He, he saw that Christians had murdered Christians. They just didn't kill heretics, but they relished in tor torture. They, 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 they came up with new ways to torture other Christians. They didn't think like them. Didn't believe like them. Didn't give like them. Didn't look like them. What do we do with that? Where do we go with that? Verse 7. And the angel said unto me, Where did thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that thou sawest and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. He's amazed at who doesn't make it. And I, you know, I think that there's reason because most of us are will be amazed at who we're going to see in heaven and who we're not going to see in heaven. I think a lot of us are going to be shook. <laughs> people we would have sworn would not make it are not going to be there. There are people are going to be there. And people that we swore we knew would be in heaven are going to be absent. 
when we see that it was who was and is and, and yet is, you know, it could possibly hold consistent with a Roman Empire resurgence, but it could possibly hold consistent with um, an Egyptian Empire resurgence. Now, I couldn't understand no shock because Egypt has always been always been on the side of Satan <laughs> has always been on the side of Satan but you know it, 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 there could be a resurgence of, of, of a variety of, of empires it could be the Assyrian Empire it could be you know there are a lot of places that, that weren't that are still sort of around but they're not an empire but could have a resurgence there there are others but I, I would venture to say that it could be these I would not be surprised if it was Rome um, or the fact that the Vatican is a sovereign nation mm. within Rome. That's how much power they have. They're a sovereign nation within Rome. <sighs> okay. Now, I will say this. When you study Daniel 2 and 7, it's clear that there are four empires, okay, here in, 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 in throughout time. You got Babylon, you got Persia, you have Greece, and you have Rome. But Rome, potentially in two phases, falls apart, comes back. Similar portrayal. Um, I want you to notice that this beast, um, she comes out of, not the beast, this woman comes out of the, the pit. I mean, the, this, this, this empire comes out of the, out of the pit. Okay. Comes out of the pit. This, this reigning ruling comes out of the pit. This is not simply a revival of an earthly empire, but this is supernaturally charged. Now that makes me ask the question that if it is Rome, if this is the Roman empire going to make a resurgence, or if, if this is the Vatican or whatever, if it's making a resurgence, I have to ask the question when it came the first time, was it supernaturally charged or, or, or is the revival only supernaturally charged? But whatever it is, it's, it's obviously supernaturally charged because it's coming out of the bottomless pit or the abusos or hill. Okay. Um, but I want, I want to encourage you to be, to, to take a second and to go to second Corinthians two 11. Don't be deceived. Watch for the signs. Be aware of who's moving. When you're watching the news, when you're watching TV, I make the joke all the time that Netflix is the devil and I kind of sort of am inclined to believe it because I am my worst self after I've been watching Netflix. Um, and I like some shows on there. There are shows on Netflix that I like, okay? Uh, but I am, I am, my brain goes to places that just doesn't need to go. It allows my depravity to run wild while it seems like if I'm watching other stuff, that's not the case. I say this, be, don't be deceived. Like be awake. We're, we're not studying this, this book for you, you just to be like, Oh, this is good. No, watch the, watch the signs, be aware of what's happening. And even if my conjecture or your conjecture is off, you know, the signs. So if time begins to shift and, and these signs start to point to a different place, you now know the signs to be able to point you in a different direction. All right. Be aware, be aware. Don't, don't, don't fall. Don't get lost. Because just like, like I'm learning every day and I'm studying, you learn and study and, and find what is the spirit, what is the, what is the spirit, what are the scriptures saying to me, what is prophecy suggesting, okay? All right. But be aware of who's moving. Now, I want you to also be aware that the first prophecy of Christ was in Genesis 3. Um, and God then there declares war on Satan. Okay, you remember he says, and the, and the Lord said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, that thou art cursed above all the cattle and above every beast of the field, that thou, but that upon thy belly shalt thou go, and the dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise the heel, the heel 
idiomatic of this woman, okay? Idi idiomatic. I'm going to put in enmity between you and this woman. We often forget that Satan has seed. Okay, there's conflict here in Revelation that the forces are coming to climax. We, we are coming to climax. Um, this is likely why they continue to blaspheme no matter what God poured out last chapter and chapters before. Because they were not his seed. They weren't the seed of God. They were the seed of Satan. And that's disturbing. Oh, that's disturbing. Verse 9. And there is no mind which hath wisdom. And the seven heads and the seven mountains on whom the woman sitteth. Okay, here we are pointing back to Rome. And the city on the seventh hills has always been an idiom of Rome. Even before Catholicism, all throughout classical literature. Um, and this rules over the kings of the earth. Again, I think we're, we're this, it's clear where we're pointing. Now, whether this is Rome the Vatican or Rome itself, I think it's pointing toward Rome. Now, some people believe he's writing from Babylon. Other, others believe that this is an idiom for Rome. You know, you just kind of read it and, and come to your own conclusions. Um, I also want you to remember that mountains, and I think we've talked about this before, are also used throughout scripture as an idiom for the government. Okay. Um, so it very well could be that these are seven governments, seven, seven ideas of government. And, and there are seven Kings. Five are fallen. One is, and the other is not yet to come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Seven Kings should read. They are, they were seven Kings. Okay. Based on translation. Now, there were seven kings, five were fallen, one is, and the other is not yet to come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. A lot of times we forget um, that Egypt and Assyria, excuse me, came prior to Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Um, from Daniel on, we're familiar, we, you know, we're familiar with Babylon, and we know from Babylon, Persia, and from Persia, Greece. From Greece, Rome. But before that, of course, you had Egypt and in Assyria. Well, when we look at that, what do we get? We get the Egyptian empire has fallen. Egypt, Egypt is still a place, but it's not an empire anymore. Assyria has fallen. Babylon has fallen. Persia has fallen. Greece has fallen. Rome won, but still is. So the Vatican still has power. It's not necessarily... An empire like we think of empires on the earth, but in in, in the Vatican has power. They might not be. They have power, but it makes me ask the question: Who is the seventh? Makes me. I don't know. I don't know. Makes me nervous. It's part of me thinks maybe it could be the U.S. Who knows? We don't know. I don't even want to throw that in there because that's just me. That that has no base anywhere. Okay. Um, and then the eighth we could believe would be Satan incarnate now there are several views on the different forms of government you know they could often it could be different leaders it could be different types of government you know there's there's a whole bunch of conjecture that goes around this verse um and a lot of people read it differently verse 11 and the beast that was and is not even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition and the ten horns which they saweth are ten kings which have no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. They have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. I see right now we see this one world government, this one world religion coming into focus. 
with ten horns, which saw as the ten kings, that received no kingdom yet, but received power as kings, one hour with the beast. And then they take all of their power, and they give it to one guy. All of these rulers, now that don't even sound right. All these rulers decided that in order to go where we're seeing this one world government come show up because they're getting ready to declare war on God. Now, what's funny is God declared war on Satan in the beginning. But what we see here is this one world government is coming into view. And it's coming into view because they're ready to go and try to fight God. I just want to know how delusional do you really have to be? I just I I, I want to know. I mean I mean, and and maybe it's it's one of those things where, and when you're in the thick of it, you can't see it. You know, so you know how sometimes you go through situations and you get out of it, you're like, man, how did I fall for that? Maybe it that has to be one of these situations because you know they said the beast was a smooth talker. They talk about that a lot. Whatever he told these folks, he had them duped. Because I don't know how you could know the truth about God and and not worship him as God. Um, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. So they're going to war with God, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. You should notice who's with the Lamb the called, the chosen, and the faithful. So he's uh, those of us who are sealed. We are with the Lamb, and the Lamb is getting ready to go to war. And he's going he's going to beat him up pretty bad, but those who are called, chosen, and faithful are nestled safely with the Lamb. I think that's again a message to us that if we are called, chosen, and faithful, I think the key word here is faithful. You notice, and I, that's in contrast. And that's what makes me think that this is a church. That's in contrast to this whore. This woman, this harlot, who has been described multiple times as just that, a cheater. But then he says the faithful, the call, the chosen, and the faithful. Which makes me wonder, did he call and choose them, but they weren't faithful? He called them, maybe, they and, and they just ran. Whatever, whatever, whatever happened, the faithful are there with him. That's a, that's a message. Remain faithful. Faithfulness. And I was telling one of my colleagues at the church. Faithfulness has opened so many doors for me. Sure. May, may be gifted. But faithfulness. Faithfulness has opened so many doors for me. And, and sent me so much help. And provided so much more for me. In faithfulness. You know it's one thing to be gifted. But can you, can you, can you stay? Do you have stay power? Do you have conviction? Can you stand on what you believe and not waver even when nobody else agrees? That's the question. Verse 15, And he said unto me, The waters which thou saw, where the horse sitteth, are people, peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. Waters are idiomatic of the people of the world. She's standing on them. She's ruling and subduing them. She's ruling the world. Ruling the hearts and thoughts. Ruling the world. 
subduing folks from all kind of all the countries and all the multitudes. Ruling the world. And all of the nations have come together under this one world religion and it's about to get heinous. Heinous. And the ten horns which thou sawest on the beast, these shall hate the whore. And they shall make her desolate, naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What just happened? The ten horns, the authority of the nations on the beast, that the beast is ruling and reigning and subduing. The ten horns, remember that's the authority. The authority, the power that he has, hates that this 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 woman that's been running her for so running the running the world for so long, hates that. They just formed this world religion, hates that, and the authority of the beast hates that this church that ain't really doing like Christ did, hates that it's got more power than him. And so it turns on him. Because power, total power absolutely corrupts. More power you get, the more corrupt. Okay? So the authority, the horns get upset. And as they get upset, they turn on the woman. Okay? And they destroy her. They didn't, they didn't just destroy her, but they humiliate her. Eat her flesh, burn her with fire, make her desolate and naked, tear up, ravage everything that she's built. And that's, I mean, that's, if we're, if we're talking what I've been saying, are we talking, we're, are we talking about terrible tor torment, destruction? I mean, nasty, terrible destruction. Because she got too much power. She was controlling, controlling the beast until the beast got too much, until the beast got sick of it. Verse 17, and God have put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. For God have put in their hearts to fulfill his will. Some people kind of think that Babylon 18 is different because the kings of the earth kill her in 17. But to me, that could be, however, that God, the God of heaven did what he just said that he did, and that he put in the hearts of evil men what he would do. Um, to do this, his will involuntarily, as if they weren't submitted to him, but they did. If you recall with me, in Exodus, it was God that hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and hardened it ten times over until the very end, until he had poured out his judgment on them. Never turned his heart. It, it didn't turn his heart, but only for a long time for him to destroy him. He convinced him that he was doing his own self a favor by letting the folks go. And when he does that, he convinces, he then hardens Pharaoh's heart again. Pharaoh chases him out into the wilderness until they get to the sea. And now while the sea is opened up to preserve the, the Israelites, it kills them. So the same God who can preserve and protect his people can also destroy those who are in, in contrast to his will and his way. So Pete, there are some people who think that Babylon 18 is going to be different. I mean, Babylon, <laughs> Revelation 18 is going to be different in 18. But I have of the mind that God has put in his heart, put in their hearts to fulfill his will. God is going to do what he wants. He is in control. And that's the difference here. Satan can't touch you unless you allow it. God can do what he wants. Verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest, is a great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Speaking present tense. Now, if he's speaking present tense, 
who was reigning in John's time? Rome. That's who was reigning over the kingdom of the earth. They were just pagan at the time. And even in 18, she's the same city. So the, the idea that this is the mystery of Babylon can, makes me believe that it's a city. And if I had to guess which city it is, it's Rome. And then if I had to guess how Rome, because Rome is not an empire today, there is an empire in Rome. Um, and if we could, I could be wrong. I could be wrong because we're also going to discover that there's a physical city on the banks of the Euphrates that's going to be destroyed, which is where Babylon is. So that makes me ask the question, are we talking Rome or are we talking Babylon? Or are we talking both? I would, I would just, in, I, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 51 and come to your own conjecture. What do you think? How have you arrived at your, your ideas? Read the word. I can tell you what I think. I can tell you what I believe. I can tell you what I've studied. Read the word. Because over the years, I'm going to tell you this about studying the word of God. Over the years, there have been things that I have held in regard. There have been theologies and ideas that I've held. And you know what? My heart has changed as I've gone into a new place. The more living I have given, I've gained, it has shaped the way that I see scripture. The more I learn about interpreting the word of God, it has shaped the way that I see scripture. So I'm teaching this out of the lens by which God has given me, but you've got to read this out of the lens that God has given you. Y'all be blessed. This has been Revelation 17. Until next time, I'm Reverend Kojo.